If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody, and welcome. And today we are doing a fascinating debate centering on psychedelics. Yes, psychedelics, which in medical terms are those inexact category of drugs that affect perception and cognition. And without question, they have been gaining broader acceptance in the culture in recent years. Proponents of wider use of psychedelics point to their potential benefits in the fields of neuroscience and as therapies, having therapeutic benefits. Opponents of wider use point to the dangers of that use and also about a lack of data on what greatly increasing access to psychedelics would mean in society at large. Either way, as with cannabis, the movement for wider use of psychedelics is growing. It's an issue that seemed ripe for debate. So here it is. Should society legalize psychedelics? I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared. All right, so let's get started with this. It's time to cast your first vote. You're going to do that by going to iq2us.org. That's iq, the number two, us.org. I'll give you just a second to pull that up in a new tab, or you can do it from any browser on your cell phone, iq2us.org. And when you're there, you'll be able to cast your first vote on the resolution, legalize psychedelics. You can vote for the motion, against the motion, or declare yourself undecided. And in our view, these are all entirely respectable points of view. That's why we've brought in debaters on two of these sides. But undecided is also a respectable point of view from which to start. We're going to ask you to do this again after you have heard the debate. And again, it's going to be the side that sways the most minds between the first and the second vote in percentage point terms that will be our winner. All right, then. Time to meet our debaters. Arguing for the motion, legalize psychedelics, is Rick Doblin, founder and executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. His partner, Bila Bache, an anthropologist and drug policy expert and executive director of the Shakruna Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicines. Opposing them, Jeffrey Lieberman, former president of the American Psychiatric Association and chair of Columbia University's Department of Psychiatry, and Kevin Sabet, a three-time White House drug policy advisor and author of the upcoming book, Smokescreen. So here we all are, our four debaters. I want to welcome uh, Rick and Jeffrey and Bia and Kevin. Thanks so much for joining us at Intelligence Squared. Yeah, our pleasure. Excited Thank to you. be with you, John, and talk yeah. about this interesting subject. It's great to have you all. You're spread all around the country, and uh, it's wonderful that we can all come together in this way to take on this really, really interesting topic. And the way we're going to do this, we're going to go in three rounds. The first round will be composed of opening statements from each debater in turn. Those statements will be four minutes each. Our resolution, our motion is legalize psychedelics. And first up to be speaking in support of that motion will be Rick Doblin. Rick, the screen is all yours. Thank you, John. Um, so the proposition that we're debating today is about legalizing psychedelics. And I'd first like to speak to the areas I think where we're going to agree. So I think that Kevin and Jeffrey will agree that if the FDA approves psychedelic-assisted therapy on the basis of evidence and makes that into a prescription medication, that they would be supportive of that. I think that they will also agree with the United States Supreme Court that certain religious uses of psychedelics, like the use of peyote by the Native American church and the use of ayahuasca by a church called Dunyao de Vegetal, that they would agree with that, that those um, aspects of legalization for medical use and for religious use, I think are gonna be non-controversial, although we'll find out about that. Um, I think the areas where we're gonna be disagreeing are whether individuals should have a right to explore psychedelics for spiritual purposes without being part of a group or a religion, whether that extends to individuals. And I think we'll also disagree potentially on whether people who don't have a medical diagnosis could access psychedelics in a legal way 
for a whole range of things, for um, personal growth, for celebration, um, for couples therapy, for a whole range of things. And I think we may also disagree on what are the appropriate um, punishments, you could say, for uh, if people are going to be supporting criminalization, uh, not legalization, what kind of punishments should there be for people who, who break these rules? But, but first, now that we've established that, I want to explain the vision that we have for legalization. And actually, I think that alcohol is regulated too lightly. I think marijuana is regulated too lightly. And the form of legalization that I'm talking about is called licensed legalization, where you have a license to do these drugs. And if you misbehave, you get punished for your misbehavior for your behavior, but not for the state of consciousness that you were in or the drugs that were uh, that you had taken, and that you could lose the license for a period of time as well. And then you would have to go to classes, education. So for example, we all know that drunk drivers often lose their driver's license for driving under the influence, but then they can go and buy alcohol, they get back in their car and they kill people. So I think we should make it harder for people who misbehave to get access to these drugs. Now, with this kind of licensed legalization, there's a series of uh, policies that should go along with it. And the first of these policies is honest drug education. Um, you know, my kids have gone through the D.A.R.E. program. I didn't want them to uh, not go through that, but uh, they got education that was twisted and not very honest. I think we need honest drug education. We also need access to pure drugs. We know that a lot of drugs are adulterated. Um, through the black market. So legalization will permit these drugs to be available in a pure way. We also need harm reduction techniques, which, um, for example, we're fiscal sponsor for a 800 number for people to call if they have difficult trips on the phone. We do uh, psychedelic um, peer support training. We need to embed in the culture the knowledge of how to help people who have difficult experiences. And then, in addition to all these policies, we need to have um, treatment on demand. And I think that that's really important and that will be paid for by the taxes from people that are buying these drugs. And for minors, it should be um, forbidden except if they get permission from their parents. And 23 states are like that for alcohol, that parents can override the laws against minors. So for that, I hope you will vote for the uh, legalization of psychedelics, licensed legalization in the way I've just described. Thank you. Thanks very much, Rick Doblin. Our next uh, speaker will be arguing against the motion, legalized psychedelics. Here is Jeffrey Lieberman. Jeffrey, the screen is all yours. Thank you, John. <clears throat> well, uh, I want to make clear that I'm really a proponent and an advocate for the exploration of psychedelic substances to the extent that they can be useful for humankind. Um, and in Legal terms, what that means is that I advocate strongly that they be allowed to be studied for medical research to see what their therapeutic indications are and how they can help us to understand the brain and the mind. I also think they should be decriminalized. Uh, but in terms of legalization, I'm against that. Now, Rick has introduced a nuance here about licensed legalization, which we can get into during the discussion. But I'm against legalization for the following reasons. Now, first, let me in full disclosure indicate that I'm a pointy-headed scientist and a practicing physician, but I have lived experience. Uh, I'm a child of the 60s, and although I didn't inhale uh, like Bill Clinton, I did imbibe uh, various amounts of blotter or Owsley or other types of mescaline, psilocybin, so I've had actual experience. Um, I also want to say that during the 35 to 40 years that uh, these substances were banned for further research and potential use, um, I commend the advocates, and particularly Rick and Maps, for keeping the faith and staying the course. However, now that they've been rehabilitated to some extent, I'm concerned about the process that's been instigated and that we don't screw this up a second time and have these banned and you know, have to forgo what would there be their potential benefits. And if you look at the mission statement on the MAPS website, it says some things which I have problems with. One, it says uh, to develop psychedelics and marijuana into prescription medicines. Well, maybe there are therapeutic uses that can be eventually found in these substances for treatment of various specific medical conditions. But to be clear, this is really a ruse 
This is a way to get around their prohibition by saying, well, maybe they're useful for some medical reasons and therefore should be available. So it's trying to get a foot in the policy door. A second point of their mission is to train therapists and establish treatment centers. What's the methodology? I mean, there's no established methodology which shows how they should be used or what they should be used for or what patient population for whom they would be indicated or contraindicated. This is something that's all potentially feasible, but it doesn't exist at this point. Uh, the third point on their website is that they support scientific research into neuroscience, which I fully concur with, but also spirituality and creativity. Well, maybe these drugs are gateways to a creative muse or spiritual plane, but they also could be illusions. I mean, virtual reality is an illusion. And maybe these drugs give you an inner state of mind, which makes you think you're connected to the Godhead or to the universal fundamental plane of existence, uh, or that you're creative. Um, and then finally, they say they envision a world where psychedelics and marijuana are safe and legally available for beneficial uses, where research is governed by rigorous scientific evaluation of risks and benefits. Well, that's not what's happening now. It's not being done in a rigorous way, in the way that the kind of uh, usual important topics governing research into cancer, cardiovascular disease, infectious disease, and brain disorders is usually done. Now, first thing that I would ask uh, in terms of clarification is that when psychedelics first became uh, uh, known to the popular culture after LSD was synthesized by uh, Albert Hoffman and Sir Humphrey Osmond coined the term psychedelics, mind manifesting, it applied to a specific set of substances that had a, a similar pharmacologic activity by targeting a specific serotonin receptor and produced a certain subjective state of mind. Now, um, the definition has been broadened and to include dissociative drugs like ketamine and fencyclidine and pathogens like MDMA or ecstasy and delirians. And there's no basis for this. So I think it's, uh, it's going to be reckless to uh, legalize them. And I encourage you to vote no. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. This is a reminder to all of you that Intelligence Squared U.S. is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. Our mission is to restore critical thinking and facts and reason and civility to American public discourse. We would love your support. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to join the debate and hear from both sides of every issue. More debate when we return. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's jump right back into our discussion. And now next on screen with her opening statement in support of the motion, here is Bia Labachi. Hello, everybody. It's an honor to be here. And uh, we're discussing whether psychedelics should be legalized. And I say, yes, psychedelics should be legalized. And I'm going to explain very briefly why. First, historical and cultural foundations. Two, the absolute failure of the drug war, three, some examples that we can look at. So history and culture. Drugs have been used by all kinds of populations through all historical periods. There's nearly none human group that hasn't experimented with altered states of consciousness. More than that, psychedelics have been central to several uh, indigenous groups of the Americas and elsewhere. As a matter of fact, psychedelics have been a main way through indigenous people. Their sacred plants have helped them uh, guide their culture, teach the younger generations, create socialization, celebration, identity, territory, to explain the very uh, myths of why man is on human planet. And so, but this is, you don't have to go to indigenous people only. You can go to the ancient Greeks and find information with the old Elysian 
mysteries or early Christianity. There's a whole speculation on whether early Christians used psychedelics. We have evidence for uh, the presence of cannabis since 10,000 years among the Chinese. We have archaeological evidence of the use of peyote for 5,000 years. My main career, I have studied ayahuasca, sacred plants from the indigenous people of the Americas. It's said to be used and known since immemorial times. So I just want to say that we're not inventing the wheel here. We're talking about things that have deep roots in our nations and countries and consciousness. And in terms of the drug war, it's a, it's, first of all, let's just remind that the current scheduling of drugs is absolutely uh, non-scientific and has a lot of historical, cultural, and social uh, reasons to why the substances are divided in such categories. And the drug war, we all know, it's a moral and cultural war. It's a war that lends itself uh, with, with the language of religious dogma. You heard a little bit about this, the idea of artificiality, of things that are unreal, that are fake, mixed with pathology. So the drug war has always been a war that is a moral war, a war on consciousness, a war on minorities, and a war on people. More than that, the drug war is a racist war. It's a way to persecute certain minorities, and we have associated the Chinese with opium. We have associated Mexicans to cannabis. We have associated uh, African-Americans to uh, cocaine. We have associated the Irish with alcohol, and we have persecuted their habits because we can't persecute them as people. So we all know for a fact that for similar quantities, black and brown folks are incarcerated about three times more than their white peers for use of drugs. The drug war is a failure. The drug war has numerous uh, uh, costs and drugs have been used to scapegoat us to attribute all kinds of problems when we should be talking about other things such as education, housing, and uh, health conditions. The drug war is a problematic enterprise that has not proven to, to work. It has failed. And I want to know what people propose instead of prohibition and criminalization. I'm curious to learn. We are in favor of legalization. And I want to say that we have already a few examples that are working fine. And I want to mention the case of Brazil, which we do consider ourselves part of the West, in case you're wondering. Uh, but Brazil has used ayahuasca uh, since immemorial times, and the Brazilian ayahuasca religions are planting incorporated into our societies. Hey, the sky did not fall. We don't have a tragedy going over there. Children go to rituals together with their parents. It's beautiful. Bia, I'm sorry your time is up, but thanks, Bia you very much. If you want to take one sentence to wrap your thought, I can give you that. Netherlands legalized truffles and psilocybin mushrooms. The sky didn't fall either. Vote yes to legalizing psychedelics. Thank you, Bielabache. Our final opening statement will be against the resolution. Here is Kevin Sabet. Kevin, the screen is yours. Thanks so much. Again, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, I think we need to remember what we're debating here and what we're discussing. It's not the war on drugs, uh, which I think most of us can agree has a lot of challenges and there are a lot of issues there we'd like to discuss, but that's not what we're talking about. Uh, and we're not talking about the specific limited medical use or research or even the decriminalization of hallucinogens. Uh, which would, I think, go a long way in addressing some of those arrest disparities. Although I will note, those arrest disparities are not, happen are not happening because of drugs like LSD and, and MDMA. They're happening because of other drugs, actually alcohol being the first among them, and alcohol is legal. Um, I, I think we need to remember also that we're not talking about ancient plant ceremonies in uh, cultures from 10,000 years ago. I wish we were. I think that'd be a lot more interesting. Uh, we're talking about legalization of hallucinogens in the United States of America. And that is not limited plant ceremonies in the Amazon. That is, unfortunately, Super Bowl commercials. Uh, that is major lobbyists who pay, are being paid millions of dollars to promote an agenda that enriches them. Uh, that is allowing companies and industries like big tobacco and big alcohol uh, to do what they're doing with cannabis now, which is take over the entire industry while those who may have been persecuted under previous laws are left with crumbs, they're left with nothing. Um, just in case you didn't notice, uh, the, the corner boy from the Bronx is not making money for marijuana legalization right now, uh, but Altria Philip Morris is making a lot. In fact, they just invested 
$4 billion with a B in that market. So we need to separate these issues of prohibition, which is a separate policy, decriminalization, which would remove criminal penalties and not uh, charge people for low-level use or possession for private purposes, uh, the medicalization, which happens to do with research uh, and happens to do with FDA-approved medications, scientifically validated medications. I'm a pr proponent of that. I, I, we need as much as we have, much as we can get to relieve pain, to deal with difficult trauma, PTSD experiences. I will note, by the way, the largest study looking at that just found that uh, placebo worked better than the actual hallucinogens. Uh, in other words, when people thought they were microdosing, that worked as well or better than when they were actually given the drug. But again, I'm interested in looking at that more. We need to do more research on that. And I think what Rick is doing has the potential to be very good, even though I disagree with him on this, on this uh, debate uh, about legalization, because legalization is that fourth separate box from prohibition, decriminalization, and medicalization. And legalization, we know very clearly what that is here. It's not what is happening in the Netherlands. It's not what is happening in Brazil, which not many people know about. It is the mass commercialization and promotion of a drug for profit. That is the American way. When you legalize a drug, we don't have to guess what happens. We have legalized drugs. They're called opioid uh, pharmaceutical drugs. They're called alcohol and they're called tobacco. They kill more people than all illegal drugs combined, partly because they're used more. And why they are used more is because they are promoted and commercialized in this system. So let's pursue the research. Let's be careful about that. Make sure people aren't hurt. But this idea that we should turn this over to the legal market, uh, which would, again, is basically the purview of Wall Street and Silicon Valley. It's not the purview of of medical laboratories and of careful experimentation, or even what Rick is presenting, which is interesting, a licensing scheme. It's not that, and it's not what the best intentioned academics want. It is what the market wants currently in the United States. And the market for these drugs is about addiction for profit. It's about pushing the most number of people to use your substance irresponsibly and heavily, because that is how you make money. Think about alcohol, 10% of Americans consume 80% of the alcohol volume in this country. That means the alcohol industry relies on alcoholics for its profit. We do not need to create another industry like that. Thanks, Kevin Sabeth. And that concludes the first round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is legalize psychedelics. I, I want to go first to you, Rick Doblin, and and ask when when I was there, there, there really is a significant amount of common ground here in that all of you uh, seem to recognize that the the government's reaction uh, from the 1960s through about 15 years ago was an overreaction during that period that I think we can call prohibition. You all agree that that was not productive. I think you all agree that the drug war has been not productive and actually harmful. Um, I think you all agree that more research on psychedelics is a good thing. Nobody is disagreeing with that. It seems to me what we're talking about and, and where the where this divide comes is on the presumption that any individual has a pathway to access these uh, psychedelics without having it to be characterized a religious part of a religious ceremony or part of a medical uh, a, a medical requirement of some sort of diagnosis. And it occurred to me that perhaps just the, the, the a model an analogy would be being able to drive an automobile. It's presumed in society that auto, driving an automobile can be a very dangerous thing. Enormous amount of research and experience has been built up over the over time in regard to that. And we all have a path to learn to get licensed for driving an automobile. Therefore, it's a sort of, I would say, mass access to the experience. I want to ask you, Rick, am I capturing the degree of access that you're talking about, the, the principle of access, the spirit of the kind of access you're talking about? Yes, definitely. I think that there should be free access for adults um, with a license to these drugs. Not everybody's going to want to do it, but I think a substantial number of people will. I would uh, take issue with Kevin saying this is all about addiction for profit. Uh, Jeffrey Lieberman, Jeffrey has talked about how psychedelics, the classic psychedelics, meaning LSD, uh, psilocybin, mescaline, are not really addictive drugs. Um, 
but I do believe that there should be access. And I think one of the problems of uh, decrim is that you still don't have pure drugs. And we have a lot of problems with people getting adulterated drugs. Well, let me, let me, I, I wanted to, to get you on the record just establishing the, the degree of access you're talking yes. about. And I put yes. out there the analogy of being able to drive a car. Mm -hmm. um, Jeff Lieberman, why is using psychedelic drugs not the same thing as driving a car from your point of view? Why, what What's different about the conditions, the parameters that would cause you, that do cause you to have, to raise flags about that level of access? Psychedelic drugs are a unique class of substances. On the good side, it has nothing to do with the drug wars because they're not addictive drugs in the same way because they're not euphorians and they're not hedonistic drugs. And they offer this uh, subjective altered state of consciousness that is potentially revealing about people themselves or about the world or about life in general. And we don't know the extent to which that can be put to useful purposes, both for human potential as well as therapeutic uses. The problem is, is and we agree on 90%, I think, it's really just terminology, definitely medical uses, definitely decriminalization. I'm not sure quite what licensed use means, but the thing is, is that the knowledge base, the scientific knowledge base about the pharmacology of these substances, how it can be optimized and then applied for human use has barely been touched. The drugs that are currently been tested, both MDMA, well, let's forget about him, but psilocybin, that is a naturally occurring substance that was selected opportunistically. There's no comparative pharmacology between the various types of psychedelic drugs to see which would be optimal and then how to refine those and administer them. It's being done in a very well-intended but uh, amateurish and potentially uh, reckless way. So, so, Bia, we heard from Jeffrey, uh, he, he's quite skeptical of sort of drawing comparisons, and this is your, this is your life's work, is drawing comparisons between the United States and, and also Kevin was bringing some of this in where the, they, they're envisioning that the provision of psychedelic drugs would be this massive corporate undertaking and that your, your depiction of the, uh, both the safety and the cultural integrity of the use of psychedelics being demonstrated by ancient cultures and also indigenous cultures having used them is just not relevant to what psychedelic use would be like in a f fully legalized United States production of psychedelics by, by uh, presumably the pharmaceutical companies. What's, uh, what's your response to that? So, uh, Kevin, yes, I, I, I strongly disagree that the use of uh, sacred plants by indigenous people is not relevant to what happens in the United States. I think maybe you're not really aware of what happens in the United States, but I am because I hang out on these atmospheres. So first of all, there's a lot of ayahuasca use on the underground in the U.S., both religious and clinical or semi-clinical or whatever you want to call, new age, spiritual. It's really grown strong. And the use of psilocybin, you also have such a strong culture of psilocybin use in the United States. The other day I went to the Academy of Science, which is one of my favorite spots here in San Francisco. They had a whole day about mushrooms. And it's not just mushrooms gourmet. It's also mushrooms psychoactive. They have uh, zines, they have a whole cultural movement, they have transformational uh, festivals all over the United States. And you also have a large uh, culture of views of peyote and you have traveling shamans. And I do think that rituals that uh, happen outside South America are important. And I think Americans like to idealize, mystify, fetishize what happens in South America and think that there is no culture here and that everything is kind but, but of misogynist. But, 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 they're pro but they're projecting a future where that would not be the situation. The situation would be, but would be, a, would, well, I'll let uh, okay. Kevin respond and then go back. Yeah, well, when he says about big bowl, and I think there's a fundamental confusion here, but a serious confusion. And I want to invite Kevin to join our movement and help us create a mindful regulation because that's exactly the kind of conversations we're having in the psychedelic field right now. So one All thing right. is to say I'm against regulation. And the other thing is to say regulation will be big pharma. We can create mechanisms to mitigate, to, to uh, avoid exploitation, to create uh, systems where people that have suffered previous drug offenses are not taking their licenses out. We can uh, limit government control. We can limit taxes. Right. Bia, let me, so just in the interest of time, of let me, let me, 
Let me you bring know, Kevin in, please. Thanks. Yeah. So look, um, I, I wish it would happen. I guess I'm just more cynical having, you know, been in three different White House administrations and in every state capital looking and talking about uh, specifically cannabis policy, but also alcohol a bit and tobacco and, and other drugs like opioids. Uh, we've never really gotten it right. Um, the, the, the perfect balance has not happened. And, it, it, you know, and again, actually, what I'm saying is perhaps they have gotten it right in other places around the world on this including Brazil and other places, but in the United States, it, it does become about big business. And what I meant by, you know, addiction for profit and what Rick was talking about, is not necessarily, uh, it's always going to be the addictiveness, but also just the harmfulness that, that the people that are going to be investing and making money in this, unfortunately are no, nobody in this debate right now. I can tell you that um, they're the people who are operate behind the shadows on this you know, 37th floor of an office building uh, in San Francisco or New York or LA or London uh, who, uh, you know, run multiple companies that see this as another part of their portfolio. And but why, the only- why, does that, why does that need to be inevitable? And first of all, why is it inevitable? And if it's not inevitable, does that change your position? Well, I think it's happened in every single situation uh, where we've had legalized drugs. We've never had an ex- a counter example of that. So I, I think it's risky to think that that's not going to happen. I also have an issue with this idea that if it were legalized, it would be purer and better. And I think that we can look at uh, the, the tobacco example is a very good example. You know, tobacco killed very few people before the advent of big tobacco. Tobacco had been, has been around for thousands of years. Um, but about 100 years ago, when big tobacco came on board and invented the modern day cigarette, invented the addition of nicotine and other harmful products, even though tobacco was apparently regulated, um, this happened under our watch. So, Kevin, I, I, I want to let... I want to let Rick respond to some to some of this. I just want to I just want to know for the record or not if if these were not your concerns about big big psychedelics coming in and taking over and running things the way that you're portraying it would you would your resistance to legalization be greatly allayed or would you still have concerns? No, I think it would be reduced, but I okay. I still would have concerns about the health and other things, but I think it would right. be greatly reduced that I Having seen this close up, having worked with politicians who, um, you know, unfortunately are very influenced by lobbyists, I, I'm very skeptical that we're going to be able to finally get it right after never getting it right in the history of our country. But we're going to finally get it right. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. You're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm your host, John Donvan. Let's return to our debate. Rick made some references to cannabis, and it's come up a few times in the conversation now. Uh, what does the cannabis journey tell us? Uh, what is it, what What are the lessons from that? One of the things we've learned from mar- marijuana is that medicalization is necessary as a step to educate people who have been miseducated and lied to and research has been suppressed. So medicalization changes people's attitudes about the risks and benefits of these drugs, and then it leads people to think more about legalization. What's the what's the lie that people have been told about psychedelics? Well, uh, when I grew up in the 60s, I was told if you took LSD six times in a row, you were certifiably insane. We were told that LSD caused chromosome damage and you would have deformed babies. We've been told by Oprah that MDMA causes holes in your brain. We've been told that MDMA one dose serious brain damage, major functional consequences that should never be researched. These were things that we had to overcome. Rick, believe me, we are, we are aligned. But let me ask you the, a key question. Apart from proving medical uses, which you know, you've done a good job with uh, ecstasy and with PTSD treatment on getting to the FDA, um, what non-medicinal purpose do you think it should be made available through whatever means to the general population? What is the what is the purpose of that? Well, I think first off for individual spiritual purposes, for personal growth, for um, couples therapy, for working with um, you know, relationships, building relationships, for vision quest. Apart from your experience with it, which I've had too, you know, we should compare numbers of trips. But um, what is the evidence for that? What is the evidence for what is the, what is the evidence for personal growth or couples relationships or anything else? Well, we, we okay. So we've done a study with some uh, VA affiliated researchers into cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy, 
which is where conjoint means couples, where one has PTSD, the other has, uh, it affects the person in the relationship. And we worked, blended that with MDMA. Both people got MDMA. There were all sorts of measures of their relationship. The relationship was increased. But because of the FDA only dealing with medicalized conditions, couples therapy is not going to be something that could be medicalized. Who's going to be spending all the money to try to do this research to prove to you that uh, a million anecdotal reports don't count? You know, that you need... If you had a modicum of evidence to support that, it could be marketed as a nutraceutical or as a supplement. You don't have to go through the rigorous FDA approval. The problem Not as a is, controlled the problem, substance. The, the problem is, is that practice is leaping ahead of research. No, I would say that's not the case. L- let me say that, that we have a um, situation where, you know, where are the resources going to come from for this kind of research that you're speaking about, looking at benefits? It's not coming from the Nationalist on Drug Abuse. It's not even coming from the Nationalist on Mental Health. It's coming from companies like MAPS that are trying to medicalize. So I don't know that we will have this vast scientific, yeah, but, but there are but so the, many. The, the absence of support for research is not a reason to jump ahead and assume that, you're, that your beliefs are true. No, I, you know, I want to say to uh, Jeffrey that I understand you're a medical doctor and that you have published many articles and you're, you know, science oriented. But I've, I think I've also fun- taken psychedelics recreationally. Good. Good for you. I, I think there's a fundamental mistake that is like confusing reality with research and taking research as the only measure for reality. So, for example, you have thousands and thousands of years of peyote use, ayahuasca use, uh, psilocybin use, and that's not documented in FDA clinical trials. You must remember that clinical trials is something that emerged in the 40s, mainly to treat, to, to deal with new drugs. So it doesn't even make sense to talk about new drugs when you're talking about these compounds. And in this specific case, for example, uh, you know, experience and epidemiology and collective experience trumps clinical trials. I think that it's a rather like naive question to say what is the evidence. Like there is a million evidences. If you Google this and you say, does do psychedelics help creativity? And you ask any rock star, have they done psychedelics? They will say yes. You ask painters, you ask people that created revolutions, have they tried the substances? Bia, you've, you've made that point really well. I just want to let Jeffrey respond to some of it, that there's a that research, as she said, is this, and that there's other kinds of experience, other kinds of data, other kinds of inf- sources of information that can tell stories that clinical trials don't. Yeah, I, I don't want to keep uh, psychedelics locked down to only FDA-approved medical uses. I, I agree with decriminalization and the underground that has existed, which is administered it under control conditions by well-intended people, even if they weren't thoroughly knowledgeable, has been uh, relatively safe. Uh, the problem is, is that saying it's been used for thousands of years ritualistically by the Eleusinian mysteries, by the Greeks, uh, if it was the original sacrament of the Christians that was replaced by a placebo wafer, um, that's fine. But people worshipped idols for millions of years, too. People thought the earth was flat for millions of years, too. And those things didn't prove to be true. The whole arc of civilization has been guarded by science, which has verified the assumptions that humans have made. And I'm just saying, before we screw this up again, let's make sure we know what we're doing. Just for the audience that doesn't know about the again factor, because everybody else here is clued into it, what happened? Well, naturally occurring psychedelic substances had been used, as Bia pointed out, for thousands of years. But when uh, Albert Hoffman synthesized LSD and it was marketed as Delcid in the 1950s, it sort of sprang into the popular culture. And LSD plus the naturally occurring psychedelics began to be used, and people like Timothy Leary and Ken Kesey spread the uh, tune-in, turn-on, drop-out, and this is the pathway to spiritual uh, enlightenment and happiness, and it got out of control. It wasn't so bad as the crack epidemic, but a couple of things did happen, like Art Linkletter's daughter being, uh, killing herself and some people having bad trips, ending up in emergency she rooms. She didn't do that. But that, that, was that was months that was a, after that was a, she that took that, LSD. That was that enough was... for the Nixon administration to use it for political purposes to ban it, which was wrong. It was an overreaction. But that's the same kind of thing that could happen again. Kevin Sabet, please. On, on that point, I, I wanted to ask really two, two things, actually. One is, then why isn't decriminalization enough? All right, again, a timeout. Kevin, I want you to take 30 seconds to make the distinction between decriminalization and legalization before I take your question, why isn't decriminalization enough to Rick? 
So with decriminalization, we have a situation where the use of the substance is not criminalized, where, where you're not arrested or wouldn't be put in jail or sanctioned for that. Um, but the commercial sales is still prohibited. So decriminalization is a situation in which it's not declared legal, there's not a licensing procedure. On the books, it's still not supposed to be happening, but it's not being prosecuted, it's not being chased down, people are not being charged. Well, I was saying, John, the main issue is, as what Jeffrey just said, it's not being commercialized, it's not being sold okay. on the legal market and traded on Wall Street. Thank you. Let me take that. That's a very good explanation. Then, Rick, why is not decriminalization enough? Why go all the way to legalization? Well, first off, decrim is often associated with fines. It's not legal. There are often penalties. But well, that, okay. Let, let's talk about that. But the other part of it is one of the biggest dangers of the black market is adulterated drugs. And as long as you don't have legalized commercial sales, you will not have regulation to make sure that the drugs are pure. And as long as you have this kind of decrim, it's quasi, you know, you will still have penalties and fines and things like that. You're not going to have necessarily honest drug education, harm reduction, treatment on demand. Well, I'm glad that you would like that. But we see that uh, legalization really is um, lifts the barrier. We have a lot of negative uh, legalization lifts the barrier for institutional investment for bankers. New Jersey and New York is, are legalizing drugs like cannabis. Um, they're being funded by Miracle Grow because it's going to be good for, for business. They're being funded by Altria, Philip Morris, Big Tobacco, because it's good for business. And so it'd be one thing if we could guarantee that. But in the real world, we can't guarantee that. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is legalize psychedelics. So we're about to hear brief closing statements from each debater. They will be two minutes each. So first, making uh, his final statement in support of the resolution to legalize psychedelics, here is Rick Dublin. So I have been married only once in my life, and I've been married for roughly 27 years. And my wife and I have tried to take MDMA together around once a year. And we have found that to be tremendously helpful for our relationship. It helps us to be better listeners. It helps us to be more empathic, uh, more sympathetic. Um, we can hear critical information that we're giving to each other. And I think that that has been a very important part of strengthening our relationship. However, couples therapy or, or just couples work is not something that we would call religious. It's not treating a disease. And it is something that should be um, available in illegal access with pure drugs it shouldn't be something that's, quote, decriminalized. And what we really haven't gotten here is this sense of what does decrim really mean? Decrim is usually associated with penalties, with some sorts of fines, with it's left in the black market to distribute. Uh, Jeffrey was concerned about who sells these drugs. It would be sold by companies. Um, you could say big psychedelic, but it would be regulated. It would be pure. There would be um, potentially concern, uh, limits on advertising, but that there are a whole host of other uses than just um, couples therapy that, you know, people will have benefited from psychedelics. We have enormous number of reports from people who've talked about their lives were changed because of psychedelic experiences that are outside of religion and outside of strict medicine. And so I think with proper support and training, and understanding of how we can educate people honestly, where they'll believe it, that we could have a um, much better situation and that these drugs should be legally available. And I hope that you will vote yes to say that psychedelics should be legalized. Thank you, Rick Doblin. Next, we'll be having a closing statement against the resolution, and that comes from Jeffrey Lieberman. Jeffrey, the screen is yours. Psychedelics have been used for centuries ritualistically in a certain fashion. Uh, it was only really in the uh, mid-20th century that they became more widespread and got into popular culture, and that's when all hell broke loose sociologically and some people got hurt, and due to the overreaction of the government, they were prohibited from further study uh, until recently. Um, my position is, is that they should be available for medical research, they should be decriminalized, 
But Rick and Bita are sort of arguing for what would be a very dangerous social experiment and social engineering. My concern is that it's more akin to Prometheus, the legend of Prometheus, who defied the gods by stealing fire and giving it to humans. Now, Prometheus became a figure representing human striving, particularly for knowledge, and the risk of overreaching and its unintended consequences. And he's regarded as embodying the lone genius, the true believer who thinks they know by their true experience or their intuition what's good to improve human existence. So as George W. Bush tried to say and mangled the quote, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, uh, we don't want to be fooled again. And or as the rock group says, in terms of who, the who, we won't get fooled again. If we allow this to be let out the, uh, too quickly without adequate proof, we're risking losing the possibility of their benefits for a long period of time. So please vote no for legalization. Thank you, Jeffrey Lieberman. And our next speaker will be speaking in support of the resolution to legalize psychedelics. Here is Bia Labache. I think a lot of what has been said here is based on fear and it's based on, uh, you know, uh, attempts of science to control everything and discredit, make a, a kind of narrative that the counterculture was a disaster. There were a few excesses, but the counterculture was really also wonderful and created big revolutions that make us stand here. I am a foreigner. I immigrated to the United States because to me, I've been here for four years. I immigrated to join the psychedelic renaissance. The Bay Area is the birthplace and, you know, it's where the psychedelic renaissance is, is blooming and we are super enthusiastic and positive about this future to come. And I think we're going to look back to this historical period that we're now and we're just going to be ashamed of ourselves like, like if it was you know, during the times that we did slavery or women couldn't vote, a time where you shamed people, you stigmatized their practices, you threw black and brown bodies into jail, and you, you told people that their habits were wrong. So I, I think the United States is the land of freedoms, the land of hope. I ask you to please join Rick and I in the force and power and beauty of the psychedelic revolution with all its love and with its renewed hope for a better humanity. Please vote yes with us. Thank you, Bia Labache. And finally, with our argument uh, against the resolution and our last speaker in this round, the resolution again, legalized psychedelics, he is against. Here is Kevin Sabet. I wish I could be more proud of what we created, but I'm not. The outcome of legalization is shameful, hurts people, and we're not safer. What I've changed my mind on, applying current reality, I was too naive to anticipate years ago, is the wisdom of a commercialized, for-profit, elitist, government-protected, privileged, monopolistic industry that perpetuates itself and its obscene profits to the detriment of the public good. Those were the words of the introduction of a stunning op-ed and admission by the writer of marijuana legalization in Colorado. Now, fast forward to almost 10 years later, seeing what the effects have been. This is somebody who defended the plant of marijuana for his whole career and still does and, and uses it, but understands that legalization actually was a lot worse when it came to the rights of users, but definitely the rights of, of non-users. Uh, the drugs that kill the most in our society are legal ones, and it's not because they're necessarily more harmful. Alcohol is not more harmful than, uh, than heroin but it's because they are commercialized and normalized in society. It's one thing to advocate for decriminalization, ending the war on drugs. It's another thing to advocate for the commercialization and normalization, which is exactly what would happen if we legalize psychedelics. It's very hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, despite all of the efforts that are going on, there's still 420,000 deaths a year from cigarettes, even though the use is declining. But we still have lung cancer and other detrimental effects. And that was the goal of this industry is to make money. And that's what happened with big tobacco. And I don't see why we would want to do that again. It does not mean we necessarily want to criminalize people. Uh, but the idea that we think we can finally get it right, I haven't seen evidence that shows that that's true. That's why I'm in line with the National Academy of Sciences, with all of the major medical associations, uh, with parents uh, who care about their kids. I think, you know, the old adage, hope, not dope, I think makes a lot of sense. Um, 
there might be some limited uses in some special situations with a you know physician supervising a low dosage within therapy. That's not what we're talking about with American style commercialization. When we're talking about that, we're talking about venture capitalists and banks. And that's why you should vote no on legalizing hallucinogens. Thank you, Kevin Zabed. Thank you, everybody. And that concludes the final round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is legalize psychedelics. And now it's time for our second and final vote. Remember, it's the side that changes the most minds from the first to the second vote that will be declared our winner. We're going to ask you again to cast your vote by going back to iq2us.org. Do exactly what you did the first time. Maybe you even still have the tab open. Same URL, iq2us.org. You can do it from any browser or on your cell phone. Again, you'll be given the choice to vote for, against, or undecided. After you've heard the arguments, this is, you're making your second vote based on what you heard. I'll give you just one more second to get that final vote in. Also, unlike in past debates, we're going to be leaving this vote open for seven days for the broader public to really get from them a sense of what the nation is thinking and how swayed they were by the arguments presented here. And at the end of those seven days, we will be announcing the winner on our website, iq2us.org. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as we did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. And Shay O'Mara is our consulting producer. Jen Zelmer is our senior researcher. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host... John Donvan. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. 